I'm Anna Marie Cox, and I fucking hated this book. <laughs> Dan? <laughs> I can't believe I gotta follow that. Hi, I'm Daniel Dresner, <laughs> and let us discuss the nature of humor, my not-stupid friend. Welcome to Space the Nation, where we look at science fiction through the lens of counterforce doctrine and conditional entropy. Today, we'll be talking about The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Under duress, I say. <laughs> if it were up to me, we would not be talking about it. But the things we do for you, dear listeners. Yeah, because it's things you can't, we do for you. I want to be very clear on it. You can't push <laughs> this one on me. This is not my fault. No, I can't. And we'll get to that in a second. Yes. We do have some fun stuff coming up that I am looking forward to, not just because it'll be a break from the, the horror that was this book. <laughs> But there are two movies I think will be genuinely good. Gattaca, which Mm -hmm. is a fan favorite. Mm -hmm. And also one of, I mean, I think pretty influential, I think, in the way that people think about dystopian futures. Yeah. You know? And also we're going to do a Marvel movie, Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness. And we have a suggestion box, as it were. We have a spreadsheet. If you are in the Discord, uh, it is posted there and you can get it via the newsletter. If you want to sign up for the newsletter, go to tinyletter.com slash space the nation. Oh, there's something else, though. Dan, a URL that's important. There is an important URL. It's our Patreon page. It is patreon.com slash space the nation. And so a great way to support the show is obviously to, you know, tell your friends about it, tell your neighbors about it, rate and review the show. But also you could choose to become a patron because we are actually approaching 200 patrons. And when we get to 250, we will do another patrons only episode. Now, <laughs> I, I am wary about saying that in this moment because I don't think Anna is feeling very warm about the patrons because of this choice. But nonetheless, we are bound. If we hit 250, we will do another patrons only episode. I will make yeah. sure this will happen, patrons. Yeah. You oh, could also right. you could also reach us at Twitter. I am at Dan Dresner. She is at Anne-Marie Cox. Yep. Yep. Oh, Dan. Yes. Anna? How are you? How are you? Anna, it's I have to say this is full disclosure from an academic's perspective, the most wonderful time of the year. And the reason it's the most <laughs> wonderful time of the year is because classes are almost over, grading obligations are almost over, and the time when I can do my writing and research unimpeded by those things is about to start. I love teaching my students. I love, you know, interacting with them. But summer is not just an important break for students. It's an important, you know, change of pace for, for faculty. <laughs> How are you, Ona? <laughs> I'm good. It is turning to summer here in Austin as mm-hmm. well. It's the time of year when you won't be jealous of the weather that we have. It is currently 86 degrees and 63% humidity. So that qualifies, I think, as muggy, mm-hmm. a technical term, but yes. muggy. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm basically okay. I I hated this book. <laughs> so listeners, right now, we're going to do the version of this podcast that Anna wanted to do after we both read it, okay? So like, this is how the podcast would go if it was up to Anna. Anna, what can you tell us about the background of this book? What's the story behind the story? I don't give a fuck, Dan. Okay. All right, it's time for the plot summary. Hey, you know what? There's no such thing as a free lunch, asshole. So read your own goddamn book. I'm not going to provide that. And Dan, what about the IR? Yeah, the IR is marginally interesting, but not enough to make me read these 388 pages, frankly, okay? And by the way, Anna, is there a critique of capitalism in this book? No. No, there's not. Keep this channel open for more. We're done. (laughs) We're done. That is a record. That was a land speed record. 
we are actually going to go through with this, however. But I just want to point out that that I didn't like Deep it breaths. a little. I think I liked this book a little more than Anna did, and that might come through in our podcast, but not by much. Yeah, I it's I got so mad. Book, <laughs> <laughs> I really did. And I tweeted about it, and someone did answer when I said it was chosen by our, our listeners and patrons. Someone was like, good prank. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So I assume that's what it was. To be clear, we are doing this because it was cannon fodder time. We decided it was appropriate to do Robert Heinlein. We hadn't tackled a Heinlein book yet. And we do mean it when we say that patronage has its advantages because the patrons voted for this. And, you know, I assume to torture Anna mostly, but... <laughs> I'm along for the ride as well, and so we agreed to do it. It is apparently very influential. I mean, I guess. Let me <laughs> let me tell you some of the story behind this. Let's story. tell. There, yes, there, I put on my pea suit, Anna, so I, I, I'm prepared for this segment. <laughs> Hit me with your best shot. So it did win a Nebula Award mm-hmm. and a Hugo Award. There you go. To the end of his life, Heinlein claimed that Starship Troopers, Stranger in a Strange Land, and this book were his best ones and the ones that defined his personal philosophy. Ooh, okay. Milton Friedman really liked this book, Dan. I'm sure you're surprised by that. <laughs> yeah. No, that's that's not terrifically surprising given the uh, uh, the political philosophy contained in this book. Yes. And I was trying to sort of look for ways to illustrate the way that it's influential, but it's actually so influential and such canon that people don't talk about it that way. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's just assumed that everyone knows how influential Heinlein is. Right. I mean, he did invent a kind of space opera world building genre, mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. And he wove together kind of military science fiction and world building and what there is of political philosophy, if you can call what he's doing political philosophy. I, and I, I think I, I will say I, I it's not that I like it, but I do think that you can. Like Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> he, he he was a very interesting person. I just want to do a few little tidbits from his yeah. biography. He did own a brass cannon, Dan. This is our first cannon fodder entry that is literal cannon fodder, I wow. suppose. Okay, yeah. Which, yeah. which, of course, I guess in retrospect is the Chekhov's What's It in this, in this book. That is Because the canon yes. does make an appearance. That's great. That's yeah. correct. Mm-hmm. He also did make a political journey in his life, it ah, seems. He, okay. he started out as something of a socialist. Mm-hmm. He also was in the Navy. Um, he got tuberculosis while he was a midshipman at Annapolis and retired on a pension. A government pension. How a government pension, which okay. is what allowed him to become a writer. He also um, got money from the Works Progress Administration. So free lunches, you wow. could say. Wow. So this radical Marxist socialist, by living off the government teat, wrote this, I, what I can only describe as <laughs> Rand in Space book. That's good, Dan. I like that. Yeah, yes, yeah. It, it's very random space. Yes. I mean, he obviously he name checks her mm-hmm. um, in in the novel, mm-hmm. and it's unclear what what got him to the other side of the political spectrum. There's lots of kind of there's more writing about that than any other thing <laughs> about him really. Okay. Um, his second wife was conservative, apparently. Okay, that may have had some influence. But speaking of second wives. <laughs> She was, in fact, literally his second wife for a time. 
because his first marriage was an open marriage. Oh, and okay. he brought his second wife in the first way. And it, it worked for a while. They'd both had affairs, he and his first wife. Mm-hmm. And then, actually, it might have been his. He might have had a wife that he divorced first. Anyway, open marriage, sexual freedom, that appears to be the constant in his life of all things. I mean, I guess it actually makes sense. That's something that, that dudes like across the political spectrum in general. Interestingly enough... I'm not commenting on that, but keep going. <laughs> Interestingly enough, when he was in his open uh, marriage with his, again, I think it is actually second wife, he had a threesome with L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah! Yeah. Yeah. So, mm, you know, L. Ron Hubbard, interesting. We should maybe do an L. Ron Hubbard book, although apparently they're terrible. Oh, no, he's no, such no, an no, interesting no. character. Uh, if we do L. Ron Hubbard, it's going to be in the form of the Schlocker Awe episode of Battlefield Earth. Yes, that would be a good idea, because yeah. apparently the writing is pretty terrible, but he's a fascinating guy, and he did believe in sex magic, which I think you always <laughs> have to spell with a CK, so <laughs> sex magics. Okay. And so interesting guy, mm-hmm. someone who I think might be a more full character than any of the ones that he wrote. Yes. Except for the computer, who's pretty interesting. Who, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this is a book in which the most interesting character far and away is the AI. There's, there's no denying that. Yeah. So speaking of the book, we're going to have to do this. And you okay. are going to give a plot summary. Yes. Free lunch for everyone. Mm-hmm. Dine out on this, Dan. <laughs> go. All right. Let's go with part one, Rand in Space. Welcome to Luna. The year is 2075, and the residents of the moon, a.k.a. Loonies, which I did laugh when I first saw that. I I liked that, too. Loonies is good. And I also liked that their newspaper is the Daily Lunatic. There you go. (laughs) They're kind of like Australians. They are either convicts or the descendants of convicts. Living on Luna for even a few weeks creates certain physiological changes that make it difficult for someone to live back on Earth, like belters in the expanse. Luna functions as a breadbasket producing grain from lunar ice, I think, uh, for export back to Earth. (laughs) This part is actually super unclear. Yeah. There is so much in this book that should be hand-waved and isn't. And yet this was (laughs) hand-waved, and I kind of did want to know a little more about the sort of grain production, which is super important, and yet it wasn't clear to me why. Yeah, of course, the moon is where it's going to be totally fertile soil. Yeah, right. Anyway, Luna does function as a breadbasket. Growing grain, you know, for export back to Earth. The Lunar Authority, led by a warden, ostensibly runs the place as sort of garden variety baddies. There are advantages and disadvantages to living on Luna. The advantages is that you live longer and apparently age more slowly. The disadvantages are having to live while being exploited by the Lunar Authority, as well as a relatively absurd male-female gender ratio, which has naturally led to group marriages <laughs> of a variety of uh, setups. Forms, yeah. Yes. You know who really runs Luna, though, Anna? It's an AI called Mike. Our protagonist, Manuel Garcia Manny O'Kelly-Davis, is an independent contractor slash computer technician who discovers that the single computer tasked with running Luna's operations has achieved sentience and developed a puerile sense of humor. Manny dubs... Yeah. <laughs> Again, this is the most interesting character in the book, and yeah. I actually found... well. Okay, just continue. Yeah. Just go. Just go. Manny dubs him Mycroft. Mike for short. Mike likes Manny because he is the only, quote, not stupid, unquote, he has encountered. Anna, let's talk about the sci-fi that works in the novel. I know you hated this novel. I know you hated it. But there is some stuff that works. And I did like the idea of Luna emerging kind of like Australia does. And I did like how Heinlein really does take the gravity issue seriously. And I assume this has at least got to be part of the influence 
that the book has had on on future generations, including obviously the expanse. Yeah, I, I think there's so much technical shit yeah. in this book. It explains so much. But this section of the novel, I hadn't gotten tired of that yet. <laughs> I hadn't gotten repetitive. Right. So, you know, the idea that it would one, he, he sort of gestures at how it might be inefficient to grow grain on the moon, except that throwing it down the gravity well is cheap, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Like, okay, that would maybe mitigate some of the expense involved in shipping grain down from the moon. Sure. (laughs) Sure. It's interesting what he didn't get right. Yes. There's a lot of paper in this book. There's a, oh God, there's so much paper. Every time (laughs) it refers to printouts too, I started to underline it. Uh, And there's also landlines. Yeah. Which I I find amusing. And I did have some hope about this book. Mm-hmm. in this first section because i i did like the character of mike mm-hmm. he is funny like yeah the, you and points for this this is this is not easy to do there's a discussion of humor that isn't bad right like there's an actually kind of an interesting discussion of humor which mm-hmm. very hard to dissect humor famously eb white very famously said that trying to dissect humor is like dissecting a frog which is means you can do it but the frog dies in the process Right. And I sort of got it, too, that this computer, if it's sort of emerging intelligence, would find things like perhaps cutting off people's oxygen to be a funny joke. Yes. Like, yeah. (laughs) No, let me put it this way. As AI characters go, this actually, and again, I will give Heinlein credit. It was an interesting character, and the character actually grows over time. Yeah. And and it makes sense. Like, you, you believe its emergence and its personality emerging. He kind of winds up not doing much with it. <laughs> no, it's a little weird that way. Yeah. Because there's an interesting sort of foreshadowing of menace mm-hmm. with the idea that Mike thinks it's funny to cut off people's oxygen, yep. right? Yeah. And also the idea that pretty soon they entrust their entire conspiracy to the computer, mm-hmm. right? I know it's necessary, actually. Yeah, I mean, clearly. Shit could go wrong with a computer yeah. that thinks it's funny to kill people. You yeah. know, <laughs> like I would have done that with a little more wariness. I guess is what I'm saying. That when they just offload the entire conspiracy. Well, and the other like, thing they, they yeah. and that would have been interesting. By the way, yeah. that would have been interesting. Yeah. Or it also would have been interesting if it had come to light that the leader of this revolution winds up being an AI. I mean, they're Heinlein is aware, or his characters are aware that they can't reveal who Mike really is. But I was sort of intrigued by the prospect of if that came out, what would have happened? But that's yeah, not... Yeah, and then, yeah. It ju- then it's just like, yeah, no, that just never happens. No, that no. Just, They just, no one ever found something. No, Highland <laughs> goes in a different direction. So let's move on to yes. Act 2. I'm in no mood to bundle. At Mike's request, and to say his own curiosity, Manny attends an anti-authority meeting where he meets one Wyoming Wyo not your typical smoke show revolutionary agitator who is painfully naive about how successful revolutions operate. The warden security forces break up the meeting and Manny grabs Wyo and flees. Anna, I'm not going to lie, I blacked out a few times from boredom while reading this next <laughs> section, but I believe that the next hundred pages or so consists of Manny, uh, Manny's rational anarchist friend, Professor Bernardo de la Paz, and Mike the AI having a marathon conversation in a hotel room about why and whether there should be a revolution on yep, Luna. That's that's correct. Am that's I correct a, in that? Like, I didn't miss anything. That's, that's what happens. Okay. Oh, and then they order food occasionally. The food was good. I like the food. And yeah, was... then sleep. Yeah. 
and but just but leave. There's no bundling. It, it, no bundling. There's no bundling. Yeah, that is actually one of the slang terms that I enjoyed. Yeah, bundling idea. was good. Bundling is code for yeah, sex. Listeners. Bundling is funny. Yeah, but it is almost like a real time of experience of planning. Yeah. Uh, like a revolution like it's like <laughs> no i don't know about you all i kept imagining if you've ever been in a political group of some kind and yes. we're planning some event mm-hmm. this is a very accurate depiction of what that is like <laughs> that by the way this was one of the better lines in Heinlein had i think it, there's a line there's a sentence in this section where he says nothing goes through alcohol faster than talking about politics and i was like okay that's a good there line there are a few good lines that i will when when we are forced to talk about what is tolerable slash good about this book. <laughs> yes. There are there are several minor one liners that I enjoyed. So Anyway. Now that we've nailed down Yes. Long, <laughs> long story the short real time experience right. of planning a revolution. Go ahead. Long story short, why I was enthusiastic about the revolution, but naive. The prof is savvy, and Manny is skeptical and cynical. Mike informs them that the status quo, however, on Luna is unsustainable, and within seven years, they will, in fact, run out of food, and I think by nine years, turn to cannibalism. That seems bad. And wavy. This is one of the places where it's like, yeah. wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Eventually, the prof and Wyo sweet talk uh, both Manny and Mike into being part of the revolution. Manny agrees, frankly, for mysterious reasons. I was never entirely sure why he was on board. Agree. I, you know, that is not well explained. Yes. And Mike does agree, I think mostly because he's enjoying hanging out with not stupids and is frankly bored. So with Mike's help, they create a top level resistance cell and foment resistance on Luna by goading the warden into multiple overreactions with inexperienced security forces brought in from Earth. Mike the AI adopts the alter ego of Adam Selene to inspire the loonies. The undisciplined troops kill some local young women, which enrages the female star of Lunar Society, and rioting erupts. Although it somewhat preempts their plans, the loonies and Mike overcome the soldiers and seize power from the warden. So, Anna, we've already referenced Heinlein's <laughs> politics here, but I think there's a tension there, and it, it, it's something that kept bothering me as I was reading, well, the entire book. He's clearly enamored with Ayn Rand. There are explicit references to her in this part of the book. There are explicit references to John Galt. But the weird thing is, is that their project in this book is all about forging a collective national identity on Luna. And you know what, Anna? That is not Randian at all. (laughs) Well, it is Randian in the sense that it's in the service of just doing their own personal machinations, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. Like, they explicitly forge the national identity so that there will be a revolution. Mm -hmm. It's not like we want a national identity. In fact, to the extent that it's selfish, it's Randian. It makes no sense if they really are true believers in libertarianism. Right, that's my point. Because, yeah, because everything they do is manipulative. Yes. Everything. Absolutely. And they lie, they literally lie, cheat, and steal. They rig elections, clearly, yes. They rig rig elections in order to give people freedom. Right. So I mean, it's just it's it's preposterous. Yes, that's what I'm trying to say. In other words, (laughs) I get that he likes Rand, and you know, okay, we've all had that brief flirtation. But like, what he's actually proposing in this book is not Rand. And I'm actually I'm legit curious. I mean, Rand was alive when this book came out. I kind of wonder how she reacted to it. Actually, well, and I wonder if anyone ever pressed him on this, which is that. People talk about this book as a blueprint for a libertarian society, but it is not. No, there's no way this would work. No, it is not. It is a blueprint for inciting violence. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> that's what it is. I do think, it, let me persuade you. One thing I will say is that it is a, it does seem like a blueprint. And also, by the way, everything works. Yeah, of course. Everything yes. they do works. Well, we'll talk about it this is. a little bit later. Yeah. <laughs> but it does seem, it's basically, I get why like libertarian tech bros might like this book. Yeah. Because it really is their wet dream. There's no other way to put it. Yeah. You know, you actually overthrow a corrupt and inefficient. Well, yeah empire with you know an ai and manipulating everyone and it's very cynical and it's so funny because one of the things that that's said in the book by the professor and underscored many different ways is this idea that you know everyone thinks that rules are for other people right Right. and that like what we want is a truly an anarchist society and and freedom for the individual yada 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 whenever a libertarian thinks about this sort of I will use your term wet dream. Yeah. They're always the ones doing the manipulating. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> like, no libertarian is going to be like, and I was one of the people that fell for this And I was shit. one of the looters, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> no, and in that sense, it, it, that is the, the, actually, in some ways, that's the strongest similarity with Rand. Because, yeah. again, with Rand, there's always these creators and they're, you know, and then there's everyone else. And we'll get to right. this in a little bit. But is now a good time, Anna, to talk about the misogyny? What am I saying? It's always a good time to talk about the misogyny, Anna. <laughs> I literally don't know where to begin. <laughs> it's just infused throughout the book. Yeah. The thing that I kept saying to you and on Twitter and <laughs> did legitimately like make me stomp around my house <laughs> was the fact that the slang term for sex workers is slot machine. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the worst thing in the book mm-hmm. that he says about women, no. but it's, but it's it close. is, yes, it's it close. is typifies the attitude, right? I would say the actually it's funny. So like I know that's not great. The the thing that <laughs> I, I'm not going to defend it, Anna. For me, the 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 line that I found the most appalling, and I can't find it in my printout text, but uh, I believe you found it on your Kindle, was this sort of statement about what the average loony likes, and it's so like. It just says says it all. Anna, can you do the honors? Sure. Average loony was interested in beer, betting, women, and work in that order. <laughs> women might be second place, but first was unlikely, much as women were cherished. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, again, the average loony, as far as Highland is concerned, is clearly a dude. So, you know, that's yeah. that's uh, women. And, and I think the, the other way this comes through is that the only significant female character in this book is Wyo. And Wyo... Like, it starts off as naive but hot and then ends with subservient but hot. That's basically it. Am I missing anything? <laughs> oh, no. Uh, except, so I actually, I like pulled out some descriptions and stuff oh, that good. I was going to read. Okay, yes, but please no, do. No, no, yeah. I'm not going to. I'm okay, not going to because enough. it's not necessary. Yeah. <laughs> and it's upsetting. Okay. So instead, I'll just mention the Lestrada Corps, which is the comfort women supplied uh, to the drillers okay you know and it's a i there is something like weirdly genius about him in a way right mm-hmm. like even that term i'm like that's clever yes exactly no no no. that, yeah. that was my reaction like, as well i'm gonna push you a little bit it's not that i think you're wrong but i want to say explain the difference between that versus let's say in the expanse there are sex workers there as they're well. unionized there we go fair enough okay <laughs> dan also it's well, it's the dismissiveness of it. That's actually. okay. The that's idea what that I'm they were provide. We're providing these women yes. to these men. Yeah, there are people who see the opportunity to make money mm-hmm. serving a population. Right, right, and I mean serving is a, is a 
you know, as work, yeah. not serving. Yeah. Whereas like this is serving. Yeah. This is like we are doing the bidding of these men that are drilling in the rock or whatever. Or so <laughs> as it were. Yes. The one thing I thought was amusing was just the continual description. Like he gives more descriptions of women than anyone else. Mm-hmm. We only know what the women look like. It's true. The like, men I have never... no idea. I know. Yeah. I don't know what any of the men in this, in this book look like. We know that Manny has one arm. <laughs> That's pretty much it. Yeah. Yes. It's yeah. the only thing he does for women that makes them human is he he t- tells us the color of their hair you know? and skin. Don't forget that. Yes. And skin. Yes. Yeah. I was trying to decide if blackface in a book could be offensive, but. I decided not to deal with it. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I, there is blackface in the book. <laughs> here's the way I would put this on. I mean, again, it's not to justify, it, but the book was written in 1961, correct? Like that's or 65. Yeah, yeah you know. Yeah. So there are things that are period specific to that that are just offensive. And then Heinlein manages to lard some additional stuff just on his own. So the the reason I decided not to include Wyo doing blackface in my list of things I hated about the novel is that. One of the things that even Heinlein's critics seem to allow him mm-hmm. <laughs> is that he envisioned the end of the white majority, that eventually race would cease to be a category that you could really discern. Mm-hmm. I don't know if he was in favor of that. <laughs> in fact, he has a whole novel that's like built around a eugenics <laughs> experiment. Oh, dear. But... In the in this particular book, what happens is that because Wyo is a recent immigrant to the moon, she is very white. Yes. And so they have to make her darker in order to fit in. I will give Heinlein credit. Like, his population projections were pretty spot on. He assumed the Earth by 2075 <laughs> would be about 11 billion people. That sounds about right. Like, you know, nicely done, with, you know, given that it was 100 years earlier. I also want to point out one thing about the whole, like, this isn't a very Randian, th- actually a very Randian plot, yeah. is that they... I said they lie, cheat, and steal, but they also literally print money <laughs> in order to fund the revolution. Yeah, yeah. So it's a mon- modern monetary theory, like mixed <clears throat> in with all that libertarian stuff. It's script. It's script. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's move on to Act Three, the Earth Goodwill Tour. So Manny and the Prof, now having gained control of Luna, travel to Earth via grain container to negotiate for independence with the Federated Nations, or FN. They testify in front of an FN panel that is really the Lunar Authority and are not treated terribly well. They proceed on a goodwill tour around the globe, during which Manny dangles the prospect of building a catapult to return water to Luna in exchange for wheat exports to every major power on Earth. So, the- oh Dan, just, I just want to almost stop you. Yeah. Okay. Because this is this is the book. You are correctly describing the book. Yeah. This is what happens in the book. Yeah. It is not interesting. It doesn't get well. Okay, hold on. Just give me. Let me finish it because there was. Okay. Th- there was All right. some things I okay. liked, but yeah, yeah. Okay. There are things you liked, so you have to finish. Okay. I will just chime in and tell people. Dan is doing a very good job <laughs> summarizing the book. Thank you. Thank you, Juan. The Goodwill Tour is managed by PR Flax Stew, who, among other things, arranges to have Manny arrested in Kentucky for polygamy. While some sympathy is generated from this act, there is also a lot of hostile press as well, and in the end, the FN announces plans to beef up state power and taxation on Luna and take back control of the moon. At the same time, the FN actually offers the job of governor to Manny. And this is all part of the plan. Sorry, I have to get that in there. This is all part of the plan. (laughs) Manny and the Prof escape on an orbital shuttle. The Prof reveals that the plan all along... Anna, was to antagonize the FN enough so that they would overreact and generate solidarity among the loonies. 
And you're not going to believe it, Anna, but the plan works. The loonies are all outraged. Elections are held. I'm pretty sure Mike engaged in ballot fraud. And all the comrades involved in the revolution are elected to the important positions. That's important because war with Earth is coming. So, Anna, I know this book is, I believe, praised for its political realism. And I did like the political economy of the Earth catapult thing. I actually did like that. Where, like, they keep, he keeps dangling as a carrot, like, telling China we're thinking in India and then telling India we're thinking of putting it in China and so forth. Yeah. But to be honest, I found this section to be like House of Cards in space in two <laughs> ways. First, it's incredibly cynical about democracy. But second, and more importantly... In this entire book, there is only one actor that is strategic, while everyone else acts like an NPC in a video game. In other words, this is, you know, we, to use the language of social science, we often talk about game theory, in which we assume multiple <laughs> actors are strategic, or then there's decision theory, where we assume one actor is strategic, and everyone else just keeps doing what they're doing. This is a decision theoretic book, and it makes it boring. What say you? If I answer this question, will you let me stop talking about the book? <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Yes. I'm You're sorry. You're correct. I, okay. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I'll say I, 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 it is annoying. It's one of the many things that's annoying yeah. is that in what makes the book, to me, not a good book. Like, right. There are some things that I read and I can recognize, like, the vileness of the politics or whatever and still acknowledge, like, but this is good. Like, Lovecraft. Lo Lovecraft, yeah, exactly. right? Yeah. Like, but this is actually good and interesting. And even though I hate these characters, right. like, I am drawn into this or whatever. Yeah. This book, I, I, I read so many pans to it when I was, like, doing the research for the story behind the story. People talking about you just rhapsodizing about it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like... It's like you're reading a fucking manual. <laughs> right? I mean, because it, all it is is like, do this, 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 and this happens. Like, there's just no tension whatsoever. No. Like, at no point, like I said, it, it, towards the beginning, I thought, oh, well, this might be interesting because there's an element of danger here that Mike, the AI, might try to fuck with them. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting plot twist. That would have been a good plot twist. And I think that's the... the, the there are no plot twists. No, as, <laughs> as the book goes, really, the, the entire book basically consists of them deciding, hey, let's do this plan, then executing the plan pretty much flawlessly. I mean, there, you know, there's no... Yeah. And there's no stakes as a result. And that's one of the problems is that... Flawlessly up until the point where they have to change the trajectory of their various projectiles. Yeah. Which we get a lot of detail about. So proceed with with. Oh yeah! All know, right, let's four. let's conclude yeah, with Act Four. There ain't no such thing as a free plot summary. <laughs> Anna, would you like to hear about projectile trajectories? Because that is the exciting <laughs> conclusion to this novel. Earth refuses to recognize lunar independence and sends an infantry force to destroy the lunar revolution. While those troops have superior firepower, they have zero experience in low-gravity underground combat and so are massacred by the loonies at great cost. I actually did like this, by the way. I thought that was a nice twist. Yeah. The explicit, particularly like the insight that they didn't know how to walk down. Right, which makes sense because you're at one-sixth yeah. of the gravity of, of Earth and that, that totally Yeah, attracts. so walking down a ramp yeah. would be really hard. And, really, and you see, like Highland actually says, like you don't walk, you got to kind of have half glide and so forth so that was that was smart the rumor is circulated however that mike's alter ego adam Celine, was among the dead thereby removing the need for that ai to appear in person 
Operation Hard Rock is launched, and I don't mean overpriced 1980s burgers, Anna. Mike uses Luna's catapult to launch projectiles at Earth. They aim at unpopulated areas across the globe and, furthermore, warn Earth's governments and population of their intentions, with the implication being that if lunar independence is not recognized, the next volley might not be so out of the way. Unfortunately, lots of Earthers die because idiots actually go to the announced targets, believing that crude loonies could never hit their targets. I did believe that that would happen. <laughs> Earth sends a... I did. I mean, yeah, yeah I could just... Yeah, okay. humans do that kind of stuff. Yes. Go ahead. Earth sends a massive counterattack to put an end to the rebellion, sending ships in a wide orbit approaching from the moon's far side, a.k.a. So much detail about this. Mike's blind spot. <laughs> the attack destroys the original catapult and apparently kills Mike. Unbeknownst to Earth, however, the loonies built another catapult. With Manny entering trajectories by hand, the loonies continue to bombard Earth. Eventually, China breaks ranks first and decides to independently recognize Luna, and then there's a contagion effect and all the countries go along. The prof, as leader of the nation, proclaims victory and then immediately dies of a heart attack. Luna looks set to prosper, however, as new drugs will enable more Earth visits, and Luna will be poised as the central node for space exploration. Anna, as weird as it sounds, the character I liked best was Mike, as he was the only one that had anything resembling an arc. He definitely <laughs> behaves in a more human way as the book proceeds. He starts off sounding, honestly, like a teenage boy, and then you know, actually does mature a little bit, although that whole destruction is orgasm thing was disturbing as fuck. Like, that was the one yeah. time, like, weirdly, I actually liked that in the sense of I wasn't expecting that. It tracked, and like, that's interesting by Heinlein. But he doesn't do anything with it, which, again, is really frustrating. Or does he do anything with the fact that Mike doesn't have to be male? Right, exactly, yes. One of the more, like, again, it's a more, there's an interesting moment Early in the book where when Wyo is talking to Mike, Mike becomes Michelle and also has a, you know, becomes French. There's like a page of that and then we never see it again. It was very frustrating. Nope. <laughs> like I was like, oh, okay, a non-binary computer. That's kind of interesting. Sure. That go with that. Nope. Nope. He just drops it. Is this the origin of the fantasy AI as Leviathan trope? That's my question. I, I, I don't honestly know. I was trying to think if there's any other widely recognized, you know, AI as a character prior to this mm -hmm. and maybe not hmm. he did dream big Heinlein right yeah. like he was curious about the outcomes of certain social trends mm -hmm. he did project forward about some things that make that do ring true yeah. right like like the AI right. and but then there's all these paper and literally microfiche <laughs> as well <laughs> I was going to read here from a section where he talks about um, drilling holes for the <laughs> landlines, which is a section in this book. There is a section in this book that covers extending landlines across the moon. Then I decided I would spare the listeners that. The last note I wrote in this book, which was not at the end, was, I could not give less of a shit. <laughs> I only finished this book thinking of you, Dan. I was like, I got it. Got to just talk about this book with Dan. I'm going to take that as a compliment rather than an insult. It is. It, it is. It's a say. testament to our. It's a testament to our friendship, yes. and the care I put into the show, and the fact that we do what the patrons ask us to do. We do. We do. Yeah. We do. And it, it, but I just. Uh, I mean, I go. I don't know whether to get into it now or later. I mean, everyone knows how I feel about this book at this point, but like. I just got so mad. At first, it was just the misogyny. Yeah. And then it was like, why are you telling me this? <laughs> like, 
<laughs> I, we have covered how much I love my father. This mm-hmm. is this is true. But my dad is one of those people. If you ask him, like, how did, was your trip? He will then tell you. He will talk like, about projectile trajectories. <laughs> well, he'll talk about every stage of the trip. Okay, fair enough. You yes. know, and like we did this, and this happened, and we got in this plane, and then we landed here, and that was you know. Yeah. This book is like that. <laughs> but uh, by someone that you don't love. By someone that you don't love and 300 and something pages of it. Yeah. But it's, it is like, you know how it ends. <laughs> there are no surprises. Yeah. There's just lots of fucking detail that you don't need to know. Also. Because everything goes according to plan. Also, you know, God, it was talky. I mean, so, so talky. And so self-satisfied. Yeah. I mean, the, the professor... It's frustrating because there are glimmers of personality in the professor and in Manny. Yeah, absolutely. Also, at first, when I was reading this, and I, I, I don't think I read Heinlein since I read Stranger in a Strange Land when I was like 13. And I was thinking this very important, influential book that everyone loves so much. I was kind of looking for what might be interesting. Right. <laughs> in it. And at first, so there was the idea that Mike might not be you know, a reliable narrator Mm -hmm. or a reliable character. And that would be interesting. Reliable ally. Yeah. yeah, Reliable ally. And then I thought it'll be interesting if this is actually something of a satire of a professor, right? Like he has all these big ideas and I know exactly how this is going to go. And then it doesn't go that way, but no, everything goes exactly according to plan. That's just not interesting. There's Mm -hmm. that's If you gave a workshop on writing a novel and your plot was, and everything went according to plan. Yeah, that's <laughs> like, not a good novel. No, it's not. No. You know what else, though, Dan? I have a question. I have a question about the novel. Okay, go ahead, yeah. Anna. Is there IR in it? Anna, I won't apologize to a yammerhead for being a yammerhead. But I will explain <laughs> to them that there is IR in this book. Some of it's actually pretty good. Some of it's not so good. So a couple of things. There is, like, actually, the politics of the book, the parts that I did like, it's a plan, and, you know, it, it comes together perfectly. But the idea of how do you foment a revolution, there was, a, and it, it's clear that Heinlein is borrowing in part from the American Revolution in terms of writing this, but he's also borrowing from, you know, there's a whiff of Gandhi at, at various points, even though the revolution is not nonviolent. But that basically, there's sort of a good escalation from sort of weapons of the weak in terms of forms of resistance against the lunar authority on, let's say, dealing with passports to what becomes full-blown revolution. And indeed, counting on the incompetency of the imperial control mechanism, which did seem plausible. Like, again, I actually thought the, the first part of the revolution totally seemed fun. Yeah. The logic of mutually assured destruction, both military and economic, between Earth and Luna. So on the economic front... Luna can't exist unless it gets some supplies from Earth. And apparently Earth can't exist or will starve to death unless they get grain exports from Luna. So the idea that that explains why Earth just doesn't blow up everything because they can't afford not to do that. And at the same time, there is clearly sort of mutually assured destruction issues with respect to weapons of mass destruction. And this is why, in the end, Luna's strategy winds up being we're going to use these things which is essentially a weapon of mass destruction, but we're going to use them as what's what's called a demonstration effect. And this was something that was talked a lot about during the early stages of the Cold War in terms of how you could use nuclear weapons, which is that you wouldn't actually launch them at a population center. You would explode them somewhere else to demonstrate that you have them and they can cause tremendous destruction. 
And unfortunately, I feel like we're going to have that conversation potentially again <laughs> later this year because the way Vladimir Putin is talking about nuclear weapons, it does seem, unfortunately, that he kind of wants to have a demonstration effect in terms of the nukes. So, again, mm. that's appropriate. Earth's politico-military strategy in response to lunar independence did not make sense entirely to me. Like, I get that they would want to then yeah. clamp down on Luna. That's fine. But the idea that suddenly, like, Earth was going to be outraged when the projectiles hit exactly where the loonies said they were going to hit, and Earth is somehow going to claim, you murdered 50,000 people because those people were dumb enough to actually go to these sites. I, I don't even think the most successful totalitarian government is going to be able to make that persuasive case. I don't know. That just didn't make any sense to me. Well, I, I, I just yeah. to jump in a couple, a couple things. I actually wanted to say about the weapons of the week part. I also thought that was really yeah. interesting and and seems spot on. Yeah. You talked about the passports and like sort of uh, making you know fake passports and right. also just clogging up the works. Exactly, right? like that's the weapons of the week. Yes. So like just making things difficult yes. for the, for the. Authority. By the way, my favorite female character in this entire book happens in that sequence where there's like a, a woman with a young kid who basically kicks one of the guards and then just moves yeah. on. That was priceless. Yeah. I love that. Was that spot on by Hunt. I agree, though, about the Earth's reaction to all this. Yeah. Like, it, it, everything goes according to plan. Yeah. And some of it, I can kind of be like, all right, well, I, you know, like the the whole Machiavellian part of it on the moon. The part that was almost, it was harder to believe that would go to plan mm -hmm. is the interaction with Earth. Yes, exactly. But Earth does everything they think they're going to do, too. They've right. completely plotted it out. Yeah. Well, hey, that's what happens when you have an AI on your side. But yes, right. this is the part where I do understand why Heinlein, why this is, is treated as canon, because the politics are not awful. Like, the again, the revolution part makes sense. The idea of goading your adversary into creating a, a sort of collective identity, that makes sense. Again, Earth is a little too much like an NPC during this, while I was reading yeah. this, but like, I, I get that. I also will say China being China was spot on. Like the idea that China would be <laughs> the, the first to crack, that they were interested in cutting a side deal. Given where China was in, in early 1960s, actually this wound up being incredibly prescient. So that was, that was good. But Anna, I have a question for you. Yes, Dan. Is there a critique of capitalism in this book? No. <gasps> moving on it's the moving first on. time listeners yes <laughs> but i agree well usually you know i can spin out something no. that that at least is a comment on capitalism this one i just i don't have the energy to Fair enough. like i just it's just the critique of capitalism is that this book still sells yes <laughs> that is the critique of capitalism. fair enough all right so this is a cannon fodder episode uh which means we now have to Render our judgment, Anna. Is this canon or is it fodder? Well, I think people know how I feel <laughs> at this point, which is to launch this book into the sun, all the copies, all the data that's needed to produce it. Mm -hmm. um, just put it into it now. Never want to see it on Earth again. Mm -hmm. I did say I was going to talk about some things that I liked. So Good. there are some one-liners yeah. that I will share that I did like. Mm -hmm. Manny at one point says... I don't care when the world ends, long as I'm bathed and in clean clothes. That's a good philosophy, frankly. Yeah, that's a good philosophy. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. Also, we said the discussion of humor is remarkably like amusing. <laughs> <laughs> like it's he manages to make a discussion it's a, of humor. It's a funny. humorous conversation about humor. Yes. Yeah, yes. and I appreciated this is actually a callback because it comes pretty late in the book. Mm -hmm where Mike is doing his analysis and asking Manny, and he says, I had tentatively reached that conclusion about puns and thinking over your remarks two conversations back. 
I am pleased to find my reasoning confirmed, <laughs> which is to say, pun's the lowest form of humor. <laughs> Although, again, this is actually, I should clarify, the, the way that Manny explains humor to Mike is a good rubric, which is there are things that are funny once and there are things that are funny yes, always. Yes, I love that. That was actually, yes, that was actually legitimately good, again. And, yeah. and puns are the funny once, yeah. right? Yeah, puns are like, definitely and, funny and, once. And also robbing people of oxygen, fun, fun, only funny once. Right. Absolutely. Like that was, again, this is kind of interesting. That's how Mike convinces, or that's how Manny convinces Mike not to do stuff that might be dangerous. No, is it, it's only funny. There once. is literally, a, it's almost a weird form of parenting or, to, or like mentoring, yeah. in which Manny sort of brings Mike along in terms of understanding things. And that was actually legitimately interesting and, and good and enjoyable to read. Yeah. Uh, and you didn't mention this, but <laughs> one of the characters, Stu. I have a weakness for this plot convenience, which is the incredibly wealthy character that makes things possible. Yes. And so Stu is a, is a, a titled aristocrat with a lot of money. Mm-hmm. He helps their revolution along. Yeah. He has a, a sentiment, having been warned to wealth, stealing doesn't fret me as much as it does him, which <laughs> I think is true. And then this is an actual thing that I also learned from my dear father. Mm-hmm. When faced with a problem you do not understand, do any part of it you do understand and then look at it again. That was a good piece of advice, actually. Yes. And that Manny says he learned that doing math, and that is how I learned it as well. If you're faced with a math problem that looks really complicated, just do the parts that you know first mm-hmm. and see see what happens. All right, Dan, uh, canon or fodder? I got to vote fodder on this one, Anna. I mean, there are. I understand why it's viewed as canon, and like as I said, there are things that are interesting in here. I just have to believe there's a book that is better than this book that deals with those things. <laughs> that, that's that's basically my conclusion, which is, yeah, I like there's stuff I liked in it, but I, I, let me put it this way. The, the way I would compare, the, I, I kept thinking about Ender's Game reading this book and that there are some similarities in terms of intelligence and so on and so forth, but I enjoyed reading Ender's Game a hell of a lot more than I enjoyed reading this book. Ender's Game well, is just much wittier and it's like actual... Good characters. Dialogue. And there's characters. And, and yeah. also, it brings up issues yeah. of humanity and morality yes. that it, it still gets a little hand fisted about. But right. I actually still, the big reveal of Ender's Game is one of the best big reveals yes. in science There's fiction, a legitimate plot right? twist. There are no plot twists yeah. in this book. Yes. Yes. Yeah, things happen that you don't expect to and happen. Because, and also this idea in Ender's Game that we dehumanize our enemies yeah. is like a big, important question. Yeah. Which is interesting because and, that could have been something that happened in this book, and yet it doesn't. Nope. <laughs> no, no. Nope. The way I would put it is because there are no plot twists, the plot has no stakes to it. I, I realized about halfway through, I think when they start, like, when they're about, like, ten pages into the Earth tour, I realized, okay, I know what's going to happen in this book. Everything the professor that, you know, planned will actually transpire. And once I realized that, I stopped caring. Yeah. Yeah. Like... The only times that that plot works is in like a heist movie. Right. It, when Ocean's you, Eleven. When the plan yeah. is not revealed to you. Yes. Yes. Right? Yeah. When like the entire plan isn't revealed to you until like kind of looking backwards at it and then you see the TikTok and kind of can mm-hmm. admire. Right. Like ha- what the genius of it. Yes. This is just telling you what's going to happen and then it happens. Right. <laughs> <It's> just- <laughs> Politics as a heist movie doesn't actually work is the problem because then it makes it seem simpler than it actually is. So, yeah. And then there's all the, you know, fucking like racism and misogyny and which is just like it really is on top of everything else. Like usually it is the 
social justice warrior shit that will piss me off and make me really angry. I was angrier (laughs) about the fact that this was like a bad book. Yes. You know, that I was being made to read a plot summary on plot summary on plot summary. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So we're in agreement. Anna, what's that? No, we're in agreement, but I heard something. uh, uh, It's... It's it's grain containers. It's grain containers being thrown at us. God, those trajectories are amazing. So, (laughs) if you think we're kidding, (laughs) that they discuss trajectories for like a hundred pages, we are not. Mm -hmm. We're not. We're not kidding. But of course, uh, what we were hearing just there is the debris field from those missiles being launched towards us and so we've reached the debris field we talk about the stuff we didn't already get to talk about dan is there anything that that we didn't already talk about that we need to talk about there are a few things that i think are are worth bringing up first of all there's this is just a random line in the beginning of the book and i really wanted to know more where manny says i don't oil my upper body for social occasions and i really want to know in highland's universe who does oil their upper body for social occasions like you know that's like (laughs) That seems unusual. I'm just going to put that out there. Yeah. I did like the loonies actually being polite in the sense that if you were too rude on Luna, you were spaced. And so, like, that actually was interesting and, and made the Randian thing a little more logical. Uh, apparently, Heinlein is the person who coined the phrase an armed society is a polite society <laughs> in a different book of his. Uh, and that's definitely the ethos here. Yes. So. So you were talking about characters and caricatures. There is the character of Howard Wright, who is, we only see him for like five pages, who is uh, without question supposed to be the academic caricature like of the technocrat that I assume Heinlein wants to mock, which is weird then that he actually makes the like brains of the whole enterprise also a professor. I couldn't quite figure out why he did that. And you know what? I will just close with this. Like you were talking about the, the rampant sexism in the book. The racism is a little less obvious, except for this sentence, yeah. Anna, which is literally this appears in the book. Life has never been sacred in Africa. Yes, that is a sentence that is in this book, and I literally wrote "what the fuck" right next to it. Like, where I don't even know where that came from. Like, that is, just, and it's an aside. Yeah, it, it's just an aside just too. Like, that makes it worse. totally weird. <laughs> yeah. That's all I've got, Anna. What about you? I can't believe we didn't mention this because it is again. Like, there are these sort of Phillips about this book that are interesting. And, mm-hmm. and one of them is the way that it's written, yeah. which is without articles. Right. That's true. Like, they are good. It, it, so this is told first person from Manny. And like it's sprinkled with sort of Russian phrases, but also there's no articles. There's no the or a or what have you. Yeah. Which at first is jarring and then you just kind of get into yeah. it. But apparently that's Russian. I don't speak Russian, but apparently there are no articles in Russian. Yeah, it's the fact. Yeah. What the fuck? That, no, that's true. Yes, there is. And I also wound up looking up a bunch of the Russian terms. Ah. Uh, my favorite being Stilyagi, mm-hmm. which at least one translation is hipster, which I don't know if that's what he was going for, but that did amuse me, hipsters in space. That was actually the only Russian word I didn't know in adva- when I was reading this, so that was good to know. There's also, it, during the revolution, people wear liberty caps, <laughs> which I believe are red. Make the moon great so make, again, Anna. Yes. Indeed. And then the slang in this movie, I think, rivals Demolition Man occasionally Ooh, okay. for it, how weird and funny it is yeah. and yet quasi-believable. So yeah. I just want to do one piece of dialogue. Mm-hmm. 
Don't jump, salty, beautiful. Name a gift. Then speak my name. If it's bread and honey, I own a hive. (laughs) She fisted me solidly in the ribs, grinned. I was flying, copper. If I ever bundle you, not likely. We won't speak to the bee. Let's find a hotel. (laughs) It's just... I don't really know what any of that meant. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, I assume he's sort of propositioning her. And then she's like, no, that's not what I want to do. But it's, I like how nonsensical it is. And yeah. I will just, again, there are a couple of things about this book that I found amusing. Yeah. The book is mostly I'm grateful that I won't have to read. I will say this. I know this. you might disagree on this. I enjoyed reading this more than I enjoyed Ministry to the Future. I know that is a low bar, but I did enjoy reading this more than I enjoyed Ministry wow. to the Future. Wow. See, I thought a lot about that, mm-hmm. whether or not I enjoyed this more or less than Ministry of the Future. I definitely enjoyed it less than Moonfall. <laughs> yes. Well, that, you know. Of the moon-related oh, yeah. you know, texts that we have studied, Moonfall is much superior. Oh, God, yes. That's not even close. Moonfall is much more enjoyable. This book has very strong Ministry for the Future vibes. Mm. Like, it's very similar. and It is very didactic. That's that's one. Yeah, that's true. And I, I mean, I, the only way I can say that I like Ministry for the Future better is I kind of just agree with it more, mm-hmm. I guess. Fair enough. But they both fail yeah <laughs> like, they're not novels right you know they're they're just fucking white papers <laughs> with illustrations on the cover so that's my tip to you dan in the future just put an illustration i now, I said this before when we talked about ministry for the future and i will say this do not insult nonfiction writers like this Nonfiction writers are better than this okay that's all, I'm all saying. right you know okay yeah All right. Well, we do have a lot of fun stuff coming up. Uh, Gattaca, Doctor Strange. We're also going to do the other Marvel movie coming out this summer, which is... Thor, Love and Thunder. Thor, Love and Thunder. Yes, that I am very much looking forward to. We might do that as part of our hot sci-fi sequence because Thor, definitely hot. And also, from what I gather, there's kind of an 80s theme to this Thor movie Ooh, coming interesting. up. Interesting. Okay. So when we're thinking about doing 80s yeah. for Hot Sci-Fi yes. Summer. We're definitely doing Highlander. That's coming up. Yes, we're definitely doing Highlander. We're going to do a lot of fun stuff because mm-hmm. I just have to get the taste of this. <laughs> and until next time. Keep this channel open. <laughs>